If you want to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 4, Amos chapter 4, uh, it's our, our practice here to uh, every week preach from the Bible, and uh, we preach in a style of preaching that we call expositional preaching, and, and what that means is simply that uh, the idea of the particular text of the Bible that we're in is the idea of the sermon. Um, and uh, we like to do that as we kind of sequentially go through books of the Bible. Um, and, and every year we pick a, 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 a testament, an Old Testament focus or a New Testament focus. And, and this year for us is an Old Testament focus. We've been spending a lot of time in Old Testament books and we'll continue to do so uh, until December of this year we'll, when we'll uh, uh, begin uh, the liturgical new year and, and uh, start to uh, look at the New Testament there um, in that time. But uh, for now, we're looking at Amos chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 1 through 13. Uh, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen to the reading of God's word with reverence and with joy. What an amazing thing that we get to simply open the Bible and hear God's voice. What a gift. So let's listen with reverence, with joy, with gratitude now. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. You shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. You shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings and publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when you were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord the God of hosts is his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word? 
Would you give us the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you and lighten the eyes of our understanding? Help us to, to understand your word here and to have the wisdom to apply it to our lives in ways that bring you glory and bring us much good and those that you've called us to love and serve much good as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, boys and girls... Um, I, I wonder how it makes you feel when someone just won't listen to you, when someone just won't listen to you. What do you do when you're trying to communicate, trying to communicate with a parent, a sibling, a friend from school, a teacher, but they just don't seem to be listening? Maybe you don't do much of anything at all, maybe you just kind of give up, roll your eyes, maybe write them off. Or maybe you begin to, to raise your voice, stomp your feet, try to get their attention. Perhaps we shouldn't condone that kind of behavior, but, but it's a very frustrating thing to be speaking, to, try to, com- tr- to be trying to communicate and feel like no one is listening to you. And trust me, boys and girls, your, your parents know the feeling. Well, what happens when that takes place on a, on a national scale? When there's an entire nation, entire people, an entire community that just doesn't seem to be listening. In fact, that's actually a, uh, that issue is actually a significant part of our, our nation's history. Going back to the, the Boston Tea Party and the, the frustration of people felt like they weren't being heard by King George and his government. Some of us might Uh, say that's why we've had so much civil unrest recently in the United States. And again, while we shouldn't condone that kind of behavior, as Dr. King said, called rioting the language of the unheard, the language of those who just feel like they're not being listened to. What happens when an entire nation just won't listen? Well, Amos is dealing with a nation just like that. We saw last week his defense of his ministry and a plea to Israel to listen to his message. And this week he describes in in greater detail how how stubborn, how hard-hearted, how deaf this people is really in their sin and how they fail to listen to the words of God's prophets and how they've failed to hear and heed the warnings of God's painful providences. And since this people are failing to hear and to heed God's warnings and God's word, Amos is, is, he kind of ups the ante here. He starts using sharper language. Uh, He starts even using insults and sarcasm. And of course, not out of a place we trust of vindictiveness and self-righteousness, but from a place of, of concern and zeal. He's warning them. He's using harsh words and language to wake them up from their sin and to call them back to the living God. And and that's the kind of big idea that we find here. God's warnings ought to wake us up to turn from our sin to Him. God's warnings ought to wake us up to turn from our sin to Him. And and we'll look at uh, this text first in verses 1 through 5 where we see a, a word to the selfish wherein Amos uh, confronts the sin of selfishness in God's people, both uh, concerning their finances, selfishness in their finances, and selfishness in in their worship. And then in verses 6 to 13, we see Amos' word to the stubborn. We see the Israelites were just not paying attention 
to or listening to the providential warnings of God. And first we see her word to the selfish. And uh, so you can imagine that Amos is, has kind of set himself up in Bethel, um, it, it, probably in Bethel. And, and here uh, is, this is the place where the Israelites are coming to their house of worship in Bethel. And so they're coming here to bring their sacrifices. They're coming here to, to their worship events. And, and so many different kinds of people are frequenting this place. And apparently some of the wives of the wealthy and elite, uh, political elite were present at this point in time. And so Amos actually sees them and he addresses them. It's probably awkward. He addresses them very directly uh, in verses one to three. And he begins by saying to them, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria. And so you don't need to know exactly what he means there to know that it's probably not good. Like it's, it's probably an awkward confrontation. Um, and, and so, you know, what Amos means by that is Bashan is, is this uh, kind of very fertile plain and mountain range in Israel. And uh, as a fertile place, it, it uh, produced great pastures and uh, the great pastures then produced great cows that were nice and plump and good to eat. And so in saying this, Amos is saying that the wives of these Israeli elites were, they were well-fed and well-supplied by their wealthy husbands. And in all reality, though, they were just being prepared for slaughter, like the cows of Bashan. And then Amos goes on to describe the reason for this coming slaughter. He says that they are those who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. You see, they lived these these lavish lifestyles. They're the ones who lived in those ornate summer homes and opulent winter homes, those houses of ivory that we looked at last week. They were the ones uh, who ate in abundance the finest foods and, and in abundance drank the finest wine. And yet notice that their lavish lifestyles were supported by their husbands who were actively oppressing the poor and the vulnerable. Their lavish lifestyles were built on the backs of the poor and vulnerable in Israel. And so the Lord says to them, he says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. In other words, the Lord pledges to them here, by his own holiness, judgment is coming. The coming Assyrian army is going to come and take these women into exile like a fisherman takes their prize catch from the sea. And we actually have uh, records of, of the Assyrian armies doing just this. They, whenever they would invade a city, uh, at times they were known to, uh, for those who didn't die, they, were, they would be taken into exile. And the way that they would transport them is by putting a, a ring through their cheek and then running a, a chain through the ring and then uh, uh, taking those uh, attached to those rings out into exile. And so these cows of Bashan here would be carried away like so through the broken down walls of their own city. This is the Lord's judgment upon these wealthy elite women in Israel. And what a warning for us, isn't it? As we consider how we ought to approach money and how we ought to, our, our posture as we uh, are, are concerned for the poor and the vulnerable. Now, these women, they were prime examples of, of this kind of selfishness with their possessions and with their finances, and they hadn't considered that their lavish lifestyles 
cost the poor and vulnerable in Israel their very livelihood. They hadn't considered what, what, what their husbands did to fund their homes and their feasts and their drinking habits. And so what about us? So in our buying, in our consuming habits, do we ever consider who's being affected and how? Or do we just mindlessly buy and spend and consume Martin Luther was right when he once said that the the last thing to be converted in us is our wallets. We need to consider, it's it's a must that we consider how we spend our money, how we approach finances and possessions as Christians. We must undergo a conversion of the wallet, so to speak. And so here are two things I'd like for us to consider in relation to this. Instead of selfishness with our finances and possessions, we're called to simplicity and sharing. The simplicity and sharing. First of all, we're, we're called the simplicity. Of course, we, we might do well to remember at this point that Christianity does not condemn being wealthy outright. doesn't outright condemn being wealthy. The scriptures uh, do speak of, of a few uh, wealthy saints throughout the scriptures, and they're seen in positive light. You might think of Abraham, of David, of, of uh, Joseph, of Arimathea. Um, and yet, while, while wealth is not condemned outright, the scriptures... The scriptures do call God's people to living lives of simplicity. That's what you find in the law, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles. This call to simple living. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Accumulating wealth, stacking up riches, having an abundance of possessions is a dangerous and perilous pursuit. Having an abundance of material possessions and wealth is dangerous. And so we would do well, as the author of Hebrews said, to, to lay aside every weight, possibly distract us or harden us or, or reinforce in us a, a sense of self-sufficiency or independence from God. We would do well to endeavor to live simply. And I, I don't pretend to know what that looks like for each and every single one of us likely look different from individual to individual, from household to household, yet, yet what we must do is keep a close watch on our hearts in this area. Jesus told us, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. But then often, on the flip side of simplicity, we're also called to, to sharing and generosity. The cows of Bashan didn't just live lavish lifestyles, but did so at the expense of the poor and vulnerable. Their their selfishness kept them from seeing the needs of their brothers and sisters. And we, in contrast to them, would do well to not only forego a, a life of decadent luxury, but we would do well to be generous with what we've been given by God, to share it. And you might remember that John the Baptist actually treats this as a sort of basic principle for what it looks like to live a lifestyle of repentance. When the crowds, when he told the crowds to repent in Luke 3, some of them came to him, to John the Baptist, and they asked him what it might look like for them to live lives of repentance. And, and this is what he said to them in verse 11. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Our third century pastor St. Basil the Great, um, he applied this principle in rather shocking terms in his sermons on Luke when he said this. He said, when someone steals another's clothes, we call them a thief. 
Should we not give the same name to the one who would clothe the naked and does not? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. It's really quiet in here. You see, we're called to simplicity for the sake of sharing. We must ask ourselves, Reflect on whether or not we're living in a way that allows us to be truly generous to our neighbors and to our fellow Christians in need. We should ask ourselves questions, hard questions about the kind of money we're spending on clothes and and groceries and vacations and these sorts of things and and, and ask ourselves if, if a more modest life, if a more simple life might allow us to increase in generosity toward those in need. Again, it's going to look different for each one of us, but John Calvin sums this idea up well when he said this, those that have riches, whether they've been left by inheritance or procured by industry and efforts, should consider that their abundance was not intended to be laid out in intemperance or excess, but in relieving the necessities of the brethren. Indeed, we should heed God's warning against selfishness with our finances and possessions and instead pursue simplicity and sharing. But the next, Amos not only condemns the, the selfish financial practices of God's people, but also their, their selfish worship. And, and, and the way that he does this is rather interesting. So in his day, whenever people would come to worship, they would begin with the priest uh, giving a, a call to worship. And of course, as you know, if you've been here for any amount of time, that's something we do every week at Veritas. We begin with a call to worship. It's uh, a practice that goes all the way back to the Old Testament saints. But then Amos here actually gives a very sarcastic call to worship uh, that highlights the the selfishness of the Israelites' worship. He he says this in verses 4 to 5, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim your freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. And so you see here, he, he calls them, to come to Bethel and to Gilgal, two cities where Israelite houses of worship were located. And, and uh, this is because, you know, the, the temple in Jerusalem was in Judah and the kingdom had split in two with uh, Israel and Judah uh, being the two separate kingdoms. Uh, and here in his call to worship, he calls them to come and to multiply transgression. And we may not be used to thinking of of coming to, to corporate worship as an act of sin, but, but since the Israelites' worship was empty of sincerity and compromised by social injustice, the Lord found their worship to be a disgusting display of hypocrisy. He tells them, bring your tithes and your offerings and your sacrifices. He tells them even to brag about them. That's what he means when he says, proclaim your free will offerings, publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. They they love to brag about and publicly display their acts of worship for others to see. Their worship was offered in selfishness rather than in genuine repentance and adoration of the one true God. On several occasions, I've heard Tim Keller tell a story about a king uh, who had received a a series of gifts from his uh, subjects. And uh, one of them was a humble gardener, and uh, he, he grew carrots. And one day, he harvested one of the most beautiful, plump, juiciest carrots he had ever seen. And uh, in an act of love and appreciation and devotion to his king, he went to his king and he said, Lord, 
this is the best carrot I've ever grown. I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king, of course, in all reality, probably has no use for carrots, but he discerned the man's heart, and he appreciated his sincerity and devotion, and so he said to the gardener, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. I want you, I want to give you a plot of land so that you can garden it all. And the gardener went home rejoicing and delighted. Well, a nobleman who, who witnessed this interaction got to thinking, this gardener got a plot of land for just some silly old carrot. What if I gave the king something immensely better, something actually useful? And so the next day, he, he brought a beautiful black stallion to the king. And he said, my lord, I breed horses And this is one of the greatest horses I've ever bred. I want you to to take it. I want you to have it as a token of my love and respect. So the king just kind of took the horse and said thanks and then dismissed him. And then the the nobleman is is crestfallen. He's confused. What's the deal? And the the king, kind of discerning this, said to him, let me explain, my friend. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. It was a selfish gift not given out of sincere love and devotion. And this is what the Israelites were doing. They were giving themselves the sacrifices, the tithes, the free will offerings. They were giving those to themselves. They were receiving the benefits. They were giving, yes, but from a place of insincerity and selfishness. And, and how might we be prone to do that very same thing today? Have we ever stopped to consider why it is that we come to worship week in and week out? Have you ever stopped to reflect on, on, on the posture of your heart as you come through the doors on Sunday morning? Could, could your worship, your, your prayers, your, your offerings, your songs, your serving, could they be offered from a place of selfishness instead of love and devotion? Because God delights in receiving offerings and praise and prayers and songs from his people. But what he desires more is your heart. What he wants is your devotion, your love, your affection, your your adoration, your ultimate loyalty. Is it possible that your worship is offered from a place, rather, of of soothing and pacifying your own conscience? Is it possible that your worship and and, and your adoration, your, your, your acts of service and giving are given from a place of wanting to be seen by others and praised by others and having a good reputation with others and not from a place of sincere devotion and heartfelt repentance before the Lord. God condemns such worship and considers it to be sin. He considers it to be transgression. The kind of worship that he honors and receives and delights in is worship from a heart of sincere repentance. We find that the Lord is is truly interested in this lifestyle of repentance. As we see next in verses 6 to 13, he's concerned that his people truly turn to him, not in the selfishness of empty worship, but with sincerity and heartfelt sorrow of sin and adoration of the Lord, genuinely turning away from sin and turning to him for life and redemption. Look with me next at a word to the stubborn. And here we find that Israel could be Uh, characterized in precisely that way, stubborn. 
Amos shows their, their stubbornness by bringing to memory a, a, a number of, of disasters and calamities that, that Israel had met with in recent years. And, and it's as if he's kind of going through the, the archives of the uh, Israeli times, and he's, he's kind of pulling out these, these disaster, disastrous events, noteworthy events, and reminding Israel of them. In verse 6, he mentions a famine. In verses 7 to 8, he mentions several droughts. In verse 9, he recalls some major losses of crops. Verse 10, he tells of pestilence and military defeat. And verse 11 could, could possibly be speaking of a noteworthy earthquake. And part of what's so provoking about each of these events, however, is that the Lord claims that these events were actually intentionally sent by him. Verse 6, he says, I gave you, I gave you cleanness of teeth and lack of bread. I gave you the famine. Verse 7, I withheld rain. Verse 9, I struck you. Verse 10, I sent pestilence. Verse 11, I overthrew. The Lord was the one who sent these disasters and calamities. These, these disasters were to be messengers to Israel, sent by God so that they would be awakened to repentance. But as the refrain says again and again after each calamity is mentioned, he says, yet you did not return to me, you did not return to me, you did not return to me. And so he says in verse 12, the big one is coming. He says, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And now this, this requires careful reflection on our part, doesn't it? Because here's the thing, we're, we're living in a time, in a year even, when it seems like we're dealing with one disaster after another calamity upon calamity. And this year, we've seen a virus wreak havoc on our nation and on our churches. We've seen some, some of the economic consequences of that. We've seen civic unrest. We've seen, as silly as it seems, murder hornets. Good grief. Even in this last week, we've seen wildfires in California. We've seen two hurricanes in the south. And that's to say nothing of, of the, the chaos in our public square regarding partisan politics. A couple of weeks ago, in California, the first ever recorded fire tornado. Good grief. As, as one meme put it, 2020 wouldn't be complete without a fire tornado. But seriously, disaster after disaster, calamity upon calamity. It's important that we ask the question, are we paying attention? Are we paying attention? As we saw last week in Amos 3, 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The implied answer is no. But again, we need to be careful here. We shouldn't just run with this and begin claiming special knowledge as to why these events are happening. This isn't the 700 Club. I'm not Pat Robertson. There is such a thing as innocent suffering in the world. Job is an example of someone who was an innocent sufferer. Even at the, at the very center of our faith, we believe in a Christ who was sinless, but who suffered on the cross, not because he deserved it, but because we did, an innocent sufferer. There is such a thing as innocent suffering. So you see, we, we can't go around assigning blame whenever disasters come. It would be ignorant and cruel to do so. We don't 
claim to have special knowledge about these events and claim that they're divine retribution for the specific sins of specific people. In fact, Jesus warns against that kind of thing in Luke 13. There, a number of people were coming to Jesus and, and they were asking about specific disasters and, and whether or not they were sent by God as retribution for the specific sins of specific people. And the Lord says this to them. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see what he's saying? He's saying, don't, don't be overly preoccupied with trying to figure out whether or not these disasters were retribution for those who suffered them. Instead, see these disasters as a warning to you. You repent, and unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so we, sh- we should see the application in this way. If you see these kinds of of disasters, examine yourself and discern where you need to repent. In his wonderful little book, Spiritual Mindedness, John Owen says that this is a mark of a truly spiritual person. Listen to what he says. He says, the first thing a spiritually minded person thinks about is what God is saying to him in the daily circumstances of life, especially in times of great calamities and disasters. By every disastrous event, God calls men to repentance and to holiness. The spiritually minded person will make every effort to understand and to obey the call, and God is greatly provoked when men take no notice. When God brings about terrible disasters in the world, we must know how to come to a right understanding of what he is saying in them. I must first ask myself, if God is saying something to me, I must diligently examine myself if there is any wickedness in me that has caused God to show his displeasure. Friends, I'm not sure if there could be a more timely word in light of what we've experienced this year. Disaster upon disaster, calamity upon calamity, but we must not be a stubborn people who pay no attention, who who don't pay attention to God's providence, who waste disasters by simply treating them as random events with no purpose or meaning. Don't be stubborn or hard-hearted. Instead, may we see these signs as God continually calling us back to himself. May we examine our hearts and our lives. May we discern the ways that we've been selfish, both in our our finances and in our worship. The ways that we've been stubborn. May we discern where we need to repent and what sins we need to turn away from to the living God. Either way, as Amos puts it here, you will meet your God. This is all of these, these smaller disasters Amos mentions here. We're pointing to a greater disaster and judgment to come, leading up to a greater disaster and judgment to come. So all the disasters we see and witness are pointing to a greater and more ultimate judgment to come. They're leading up to this ultimate judgment, which we'll see when Christ returns. You, you will meet your God. You will come face to face with him. There's no question about it. The question is whether or not you will meet him as friend or as an enemy. The word for meeting here could mean either, depending on the context. And on this side of of death 
in judgment, there's always opportunity to repent and to therefore meet him as friend. And we can do so only because Christ, who is our God, took the judgment that we deserve on the cross. The disaster and the calamity that you and I deserve fell on him there instead. The wrath of the Almighty God fell on him because there he became our sin. And so now, if we repent, if we turn away from our sin, if we turn away from our selfishness, from our stubbornness, from our selfishness with our finances and in our worship, if we turn to the living God with genuine hearts of sincere repentance, we meet our God, not as enemy, but as redeemer and friend. But make no mistake, God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. He is holy, and the cross testifies to this as well. Look there, look at the cross if you want to see what God thinks of your sin. Look there if you want to see the kind of disaster and judgment that awaits those who do not repent. And be warned. Repent, Jesus says, or you shall likewise perish. Hear God's warnings, heed them. Repent and turn to him. Let's pray. Father, would you give us hearts of sincere repentance before you? Would you help us to to not, if we have been, continuing religious pretenses? Would you help us to not harbor greed and love of money and possessions in our hearts? Would you help us to turn from those things and to turn to Christ and give everything that we are to him, give him even the deepest part of ourselves, our very heart of hearts to him. Help us to to love you, to trust you above all, to obey you in all things. We know that in obeying you, there's life. We know that, that repentance is like coming home. So help us to come home to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.